Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. And this is part of the perennial human existential experience as we try to converse with God and encounter God, that often it's this pouring out of God's speech being poured forth day to day. And then other times when which God is very, very quiet. And it's the reality of, of both of those and the continuum between them that is part of what it means to be pursuing life with Christ. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. My mom is from North Carolina, and so I know a thing or two about Southern women. For example, I know that Southern women tend to have this amazing gift that we call the gift of gab, helping others to feel comfortable and just sit a while. Who knew that a Southern mother would help today's guest hone the gift of gab for the sake of others and help launch him into having conversations for a living? Today, you'll hear my own conversation with Dr. Lee C. Camp, who I thought for a long time would be lovely to converse with, and I was not wrong. Furthermore, we're conversing about the art of conversation, and I'm excited to share this, especially with you, because I know that you probably have a vocation of your own to talking, listening, teaching, preaching, giving counsel. How do we connect more meaningfully in our conversations, both on the clock and off it. Lee Camp is the host of the podcast, No Small Endeavor, exploring what it means to live a good life, which features best-selling authors, philosophers, scientists, artists, psychologists, theologians, and even politicians. I highly recommend you check out his podcast. We'll give you a link in the show notes. Lee is also an award-winning teacher and professor of theology and ethics at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, you'll get to hear he and I dig into what we can learn from our Southern mothers, of course, and also late night talk show hosts, how being funny can help and hinder deeper connection, practicing prudent vulnerability and allowing discomfort in conversation as a way to help everyone, including yourself, open up to what's going on in the room and the possibilities of hearing an unexpected truth. Now, when this episode airs, 
Thanksgiving will be coming up for U.S. listeners. Family gatherings can be a difficult place to keep conversation, how shall we say, fresh and to keep your listening lively. Hopefully, this will help you discover some new possibilities there as well. Finally, we're sorry for some glitches you may hear in the audio as well as some echoing on my end. We had to pull a recording location on the fly that day, and that's one of the X factors that having a quiet, dependable studio space would resolve for us. You, yes, you can help us continue to bring you the professional level quality production that we love and that you deserve. Think of it as a holiday gift or like bringing a bottle of wine to the Living Church Podcast Thanksgiving table. Give today to support a studio space for us. You can pay $10 a month or any amount that you choose. You can even give a one-time gift. We are surely grateful. You can also leave a review for us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Now, whether you love to gab or stay quiet, whether you tend toward being a control freak or a deer in the headlights, we are all invited to learn the art of conversation and to join every conversation the Lord brings our way. We hope you enjoy this one. Lee, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Great to be with you, Amber. Pleased to get to converse with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey into having conversations for a living? I mean, your job sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I love my job. I tell you, yeah, I, you know, I get to have conversations with college students and seminary students, and then I get to have conversations. I get to read uh, best-selling books by really smart people who have thought long and hard about topics that they care about, and then I get to talk to them and record conversations with them. And so, yeah, it's it's pretty delightful. Um, the way I got into doing the work that we're doing for this public radio show and podcast, No Small Endeavor, is kind of a circuitous route, but I was a big fan of Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion. And so I had seen him yet again at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, and I'd had so much fun. I thought, what would it be like if we started a theological variety show? And so one, you know, to make a super long story short, we started that in 2008 with like this kind of world-class house band and great vocalists and interviews with writers or academics who had something to say on whatever the topic was of the evening and a little bit of comedic sketch and that sort of thing. And then in the during the pandemic in 2020, we started a podcast that was long format interview podcast. And then by the end of 2020, we had gotten a partnership with Nashville Public Radio. And then this year in 2023, during the summer, we signed a contract with PRX, which is one of the three big public media distri- distribution companies in the country to distribute the show nationally on national public radio distribution. It's been great fun, but it's really, it really, I, I think one of the most delightful things to do with another human being is have a really good conversation. And so when you get to, as I said a moment ago, converse with people about things they really care about, it's a very intimate experience and a wonderful experience. And so I love getting to do it. Yeah, it really is. So you decided to start a theological Variety show. I just want to say for the record that Lee Camp is not risk averse. If you do that, <laughs> just in case people just need to know, Lee, I told you that my audience are mostly Christian leaders. So this means that they're mostly people who talk for a living. Most most of them, preachers, teachers, and Anglicans especially, are a pretty wordy, pretty wordy bunch. We love words. I'm wondering for you, you're a word guy. 
I don't know though, Amber. No. I'm, I'm from low church traditions, and oh. I think we're I think we are a whole lot more wordy. For one, we uh, we have sermons that are much longer than they probably should be. Your liturgy makes space for the words of scripture and a little space for our own contemporary reflection on it, where we kind of flip that around in our tradition, where we have very little time for scripture, but a lot of time for contemporary reflection. And so I appreciate the the Episcopal approach. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious for you coming from an even wordier tradition than Anglicans, when and how you discovered that there is an art to conversation how did you first start to engage it? Maybe who are some of your first examples? What's what's the backstory? Yeah, perhaps the first time I really thought about conversation as a skill or something that should be developed was from my mother. That my mother had this sort of insistence, sometimes very, very pointed insistence, that as children, we should never not speak to adults. And so it was this sort of, you have a conversation with adults and you don't ignore them. You be polite to them and you engage them and ask them questions and you listen to them and converse with them. And so it was just this sort of, there wasn't a whole lot, you know, that I don't remember her giving us a lot of instruction about how to do that. I'm sure she gave us some, but it was just this expectation that we were going to do it. And the expectation then leads to naturally beginning to try to learn to do that. And then I also think that there is something about being Southern in that the sort of mores of Southern hospitality and Southern politeness that lead us to expect social discourse and to expect social engagement that I've been thankful for because it, it leads to this sort of beautiful serendipitous engagement with other human beings. And then later, as I've done more interviewing through the years, I've been more careful about trying to pay attention to people who do it really well and pay attention to the sort of rhetorical strategies or psychological awareness that's needed to have good conversation. And so I've tried to hone some of those skills and the art of it, as you say. Are there one or two people that you think of as sort of conversational heroes that you really admire, you really admire what they do and how they do it? Well, I, I think that the people that I admire, the late night talk show hosts, Stephen Colbert, for example, he's able to bring a high level of humor that's disarming while also having very serious agenda in what he's trying to accomplish in his conversation. I worked hard on the, and I figured out how to kind of do some of the serious agenda but I, I wish that I were funnier <laughs> and had the sort of disarming approach that Colbert has. Uh, and so that's kind of one of those things I keep looking at thinking, you know, how can I continue to develop that part uh, of me? But I, I generally think that comedians have to be super mindful of human psychology and how to bring the context of the moment and your sense of irony and satire. But And all of that can be just immensely helpful in conversation. It can also be off-putting because if it's not done well, it can create a barrier between other people. And yes. um, there was, I did an interview with Rain Wilson, who's Dwight Schrute on the office. And I was asking him about that, about, you know, how, how does, how does comedy become and humor become something that separates you from other people? And so we talked at some length about how that's a very common 
defensive technique for some comedians. But it, but it, but again, when done well, it can be disarming and open up conversation between people. I was going to say, when you mentioned that you're not, you wish you were funnier, that that's actually quite a gift because I'm someone who's naturally very funny. And Rain Wilson is exactly <laughs> right. You're sort of thinking ahead of the other person, which can be an act of hospitality. Mm. Like you're, you're like waiting to catch them in a joke so that everything that they say sounds awesome and then bring them to the next topic. But it can also be a way to avoid intimacy. It can be a way to avoid a yeah. risk in a conversation. It can be a way to, you're just given all the one-liners and you're not helping the other person shine. So there's yeah. a way that not being funny and just having a gift of earnestness is also a real, it's also a real gift as well. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that perspective. That's helpful. Okay, Lee, in what you're doing, there's there's a couple kinds of conversations that you have become really good at and that you're engaging in. And one of these is the kind of conversation that your mother forced you to have as a child, which is the the one-to-one. It could be anywhere from chit-chat to welcoming someone into your home. It's this, it's this one-to-one everyday kind of conversation. But then there's also the kind of conversation that you have behind the podcast mic, which is very focused, which is very intentional, which is really working to get to the heart of something in a limited amount of time. And I know for my listeners that both kinds of conversations happen for them all the time, especially for clergy or people who are in, in helping professions or in ministry, that you're having the conversations, chit-chat with people in the office, you're engaging people very casually, but then you're also having those times when you say, okay, so-and-so is coming in for an hour to talk about his marriage. And so you have two, both kinds of conversations. I'm wondering, what do you think in either kind of conversation is the key to asking a good question that opens things up? Huh. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, my academic field is Christian ethics, and in the great virtue traditions, prudence is one of the four cardinal virtues. And uh, Joseph Pieper, the Catholic philosopher, in his book, The Four Cardinal Virtues, talks about how there is no virtue apart from prudence and that every virtue, if it's not mediated through prudence, it's not really going to be virtuous. And I actually think that that's a pretty helpful way to think about conversation. Prudence is asking what's, what's the best way given all the possible things we know about the current moment to accomplish the, the objective. And so it has to take account of psychology of the person. It has to take account of what we know about the particularities and specificities of the person. It has to take into account history of the relationship, the possibilities that that other person has given us for intimacy or not. And so I think that a good question has to be first mediated through all those kind of prudential considerations. Everything that prudence would ask of us, I think we need to be kind of having running in the back of our heads. And then I think a good question at best is kind of clearly uh, teleological. That is, it has some sort of sense of where, where am I wanting to go? What am I trying to accomplish in this engagement with this other person? And again, that that then can help us think about the sort of chit-chat, honoring the other person with kind of simple kindness sorts of conversations that is the art of small talk or these heavy weighted conversations. If I have some sort of sense of where I'm hoping to get to in this conversation. So that's a perhaps an overly complicated answer to your question, but I, but that, those are the kind of considerations that I typically will have 
running either consciously or subconsciously when I'm thinking about talking with another person. Well, part of what that highlights is just the the strategy, which is also an act of hospitality. And then even more if you're, you're if you're clergy and you're in the ministry and using words to a really particular end, wanting to point people to God in some way and and ground them in the church in really healthy ways. You know, you are a theologian and you've been teaching for some time. And this makes me think of the relationship between talking and listening. I'd like to ask you whether you've discovered anything in the relationship between teaching and good conversation, teaching and listening, Mm -hmm. teaching and asking good questions. What kind of a a learning field has teaching been for you in, in having good conversations? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question as well. I, I'm flashing back to a, an email exchange I had many, many years ago. I was in seminary or I had completed seminary and I had just started my PhD work. And I had this sense that I was going to be on this trajectory for doing teaching, college teaching. And so I emailed a former college professor of mine as an undergrad who I thought was just a brilliant teacher and that I always admired. And so I had emailed him saying, here's what I'm doing. What advice do you have for me about how to think about teaching? And you know, even to this day, I remember he said, uh, he said, one, you need to master your own material and master your material such that you can say it in simple ways so that that good old Bubba with a six pack and a gun rack in the back of his pickup can understand what you're saying. That way you can pay attention to the classroom and pay attention to the students in the room to try to be paying very careful attention to how they are receiving what you're saying and how they are processing as best you can tell what it is that you're presenting, which of course, that's always a process, right? But hopefully you get to the point where you've, you've mastered sufficiently your material so that you're not having to think about that. It's kind of like a good golf swing. You don't want to have to be thinking about the golf swing when you're swinging it. You want to have it at hand because if you have to think about it too much, you're not going to do very well. So master the material and then pay very close attention to the students and the give and take of the students. And so I, I think there's an indispensable relationship between teaching and listening. And uh, again, it's, it's an art that's multifaceted, but apart from that careful listening, our teaching can't do nearly what it could do otherwise. It's, there's nothing like being able to read the room, is there? Yeah. I mean, it reminds me again of your conversation with Rain Wilson, that you can sort of, you can come with a certain way that you're going to be a set of things that people are going to find interesting or funny or you're coming to preach the gospel to them. But if there's not a listening portion of that, then you're missing out on an entire enormous dynamic of what it means to communicate or be in a relationship, even if it's just for an hour in a counseling session. That's right. Yeah. And another thing I would say about that is that um, the way you put that reminds me of two things. One is that I have a, have a good friend who uh, also go to church with, and one day she mentioned to me after sitting in on a Sunday school class I had taught, she, she, she said something like, 
that's a very intimate experience between you as a teacher and the class. There's something about the engagement between teacher and, and, and people there in the room where everybody's with it, right? If, we, if we're really paying attention to each other. And that reminds me of, I, I got earlier this year to spend a day interviewing and taping a whole day's worth of interviews with Parker Palmer. And you know, one of his big things about teaching is the crucial importance of courage and vulnerability. And so it requires the teacher, or I would say the, the pastor, to have a prudential, again, I would say, a prudential vulnerability to facilitate intim appropriate intimacy in these sorts of engagements. And through doing that, again, there's this powerful sort of possibility that can occur. And then the last thing I'll note about that is that teaching seems oftentimes to best occur when there's a sort of tension in the, in the room, uh, even a sense of kind of discomfort, because there's something about the kind of discomfort. And again, all this has to be carefully done through prudence and justice and respect and so forth, because there's proper boundaries around it. But a sort of discomfort opens people up to learn things and to be willing to grapple with things. And so, you know, there's that old line about emotion is not a, an obstacle to learning. Emotion is the way to learning. And so it's this sort of sense of tension or sense of openness, vulnerability, all, all the way around. And all of that facilitates this re remarkable possibility of learning and receiving on, on everybody's part, including the teacher's part, from the whole room and the experience that we have together. Yeah. Wow. Do you have an example that you could share of an appropriate kind of intimacy that can be created in a teaching, preaching leadership space? I think that the first example that popped into my mind was flashing back to that interview I did with Parker Palmer, where he talked about um, that he had gone through three major episodes in his life of major depression and how he had made a decision to be open about that in his own writing and how people had responded in ways that surprised him about how much they responded to, were appreciative of, were open in response to him about talking about that. And then after sharing that interview, I, I did a, we have a weekly, a bi-weekly newsletter and I shared some of my own experience with depression and it was amazing the sort of response I got from people and it felt a little overwhelming, frankly, to hear the depths which some people had grappled with that. But I think it's, it's this sort of willingness in appropriate times and places to be open about some of the things that we feel that we have felt painful in our own lives. Again, it all has to be done with careful consideration. And we all know that there, there's a way in which you can go to full tilt with that. And it becomes a sort of look at me, look at me in my pain kind of unhelpful approach and so forth. But again, I think that it's a sort of space of where we let people in and we make space or connecting at the point of our pain or our difficulties or the things that have challenged us. And again, something remarkable can happen in that context. 
Yeah, maybe it's something like the art of being human together, even with the people you're leading, which which is an art. Or if you're a teacher with students and there's an age difference and a power differential, you're right that it takes prudence, but but the art of being human is a phrase that comes to mind. I love that phrase. That's very helpful. Yeah. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join the Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. Okay, Lee, I need your help with something. I will do my best. (laughs) (laughs) So there is some common advice out there that I'm starting to have a beef with, and I need your help to tease this out. So I often hear advice when it comes to conversations and, and listening that we should get out of the way and listen, that, you know, don't think about what you're going to say next is one of the biggest things that people say. Just be in the moment, just listen, don't think ahead. But once again, I think of Rand Wilson and comedy and, and hospitality. That's just such a great example of how thinking ahead is sometimes necessary to hold up the other person and to have, help the conversation move forward. But then the other beef I have with this, Lee, is that sometimes I have the feeling when I'm really trying to actively listen that I actually become pretty passive. And because I'm trying so hard not Mm. to think about what comes next, I sort of disappear or come out on the other side with nothing to say. So if someone comes to me and Mm. is wanting even just a word of encouragement, not even for me to solve their problem, and I'm in a pastoral position, I sort of turn into a pile of jello. So that's another thing that can happen. Or someone talks a really long time about something really intense or a really hard problem, you know, and you just sort of turn into jello under the sheer force of, of the intensity of what they're sharing. So I wonder if you identify with this problem at all and how you think that we can solve this today. Are there, are there, are there appropriate ways? (laughs) Like, can I decrease that the conversation might increase? Like, is that the only way to go? What do you think? There's there's this line I've liked a long time from David Augsburger, theologian, who he said that something like being listened to is so close to being loved that most people cannot tell the difference. And which also reminds me of the 
counsel from Kurt Thompson, the Christian psychiatrist, who's done a lot of fascinating work on intimacy. And, and he talks about how humans have this deep need wired in us from the time we're babies from birth to be seen, soothed, and heard. And that these are neurological necessities for us. And so I think one of the ways that we can listen and the imperative of listening well and carefully and not get caught in not having anything to say on the backside of careful listening is simply maybe sometimes to summarize in brief what we just heard the other person say to see if they've really if we've really heard them well and even if we get it wrong that gives them an opportunity to say again what they're trying to say and they feel, they feel they still will feel heard because you're trying to say this is what I'm hearing you say and so i think that's one kind of simple strategy that we can always hold as a as a first possibility and then a, a second thing that comes to mind is what what was implicit in what you just said and that is have a sense of what the other person is needing or wanting from this conversation as we're getting into it. A lot of times people don't want us to fix their problems. They just want to be heard. And uh, my wife and I will even do this sometimes explicitly with each other. And we will even do it with our sons. We have three now adult sons. But if, if the other is describing something they're frustrated with or something that they're grappling with or troubled with, we we listen and then we do not presume that they want any advice whether it's with me with my wife or me with my sons and or me with my students i'll do this with my students and i'll do it with my friends is before i give them some sort of uh, advice or feedback i will explicitly ask them a lot of times are you looking for feedback on this or how what what do you what would be helpful to you from me in this conversation and so I think that that frees us up from having to feel overly anxious about that legitimate concern that you're pointing to. Uh, if we just first have kind of in clearly in mind what it is we're trying to accomplish and let the other person speak into what it is that we're trying to accomplish in this conversation. That's really good. And it occurs to me, it occurred to me too, while you were talking that if there are two Christians in a room, or, or let's say there are two people in a room having a conversation that they're ultimately wanting to point to God, that there is, there's a third person in the room and he's the best listener, but also, you know, is someone who, let's say you're someone who's prone to maybe talking too much and being too dominant in a conversation and you're worried you're not listening well. Well, you have someone there who is listening very well and maybe increasing the art of listening to him and what, and what he might be saying to this yeah. other person. But if you're someone who tends to disappear, it also occurs to me, Lee, that you are safe to listen and just completely listen because you're, you're not disappearing. You're sort of there and upheld and your, your presence is confirmed by, by your creator who's, who's there with you. That just, that occurred to me as well while you were talking that this is a, it's a, it's a human process, but all the, it's also sort of a divine art to have conversations right. too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's quite right. And that reminds me also of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. I think it's in Life Together, where Bonhoeffer says that 
we should never seek to communicate or converse directly with another human being, but only and always through the mediation of Christ. And so he's he's kind of upped the ante there on what you said in that not only do you presume there's a third person in the conversation, but you don't even seek to try to go directly to the other person. You're only going through the mediation of Christ. And so this can be very helpful sort of imaginative process, especially if it's a very high stakes conversation or a very fraught conversation for whatever reason is to imagine, imagine Christ in the room and that I'm speaking to the other person through Christ. And so that, that kind of helps inform a lot of how I might go about the conversation if I imagine it through the mediation of Christ. Oh man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he always ups the ante. Yes, <laughs> indeed he does. Dang it, Dietrich, you're making this discipleship <laughs> thing seem hard. Lee, what over the years has been a real challenge for you to learn in the art of conversation? And, and what's been a really great joy? Hmm. I think the, the challenge has been simply to keep imagining new possibilities for conversation and to keep imagining that there's still a lot to learn about, especially human psychology and the way we are wired to connect with other people. And so that I wouldn't say that's been hard for me as much as it's been a continued fascination with me that's just re- required, you know, the, the hardness of, of continuing to work at it. And then the joy of it has been the, um, the remarkable possibilities of friendship and connecting with other human beings. And it's really a, it's really a delight. You know, we Christians believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, which is itself sort of pointing to the fact that God in God's self is relationship and God in God's self is conversation, if you will, um, that we're created out of such a one, out of the love of such a one. And then we we're invited into a similar sort of a beautiful dance of conversation and dance of knowing other human beings. It's a, it's just a, it's a wonderful joy and it's a wonderful delight to, to get to do that. That's beautiful. Thank you. Can I just ask, by the way, have you ever been tempted to be ordained? Was that ever something that was on the table for you? Well, in my tradition, we have a high vision of the priesthood of all believers. And it depends upon which part of my tradition you're, you're in, but um we typically will say you're ordained by baptism which i i you know, there's going to be a lot of folks in your listening audience that are going to start being very uncomfortable with that and i'll just say i'm pretty uncomfortable with it myself <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time we also practice a sort of practical ordination and so i did do seminary before graduate school and so to the degree that we practice ordination in my tradition, I am ordained in that regard. Um, most of my vocation has been in teaching in university contexts, but I still teach and occasionally preach in the church context a fair amount. And I'm so, I'm so glad that you frame it that way, because I think that you can probably identify with 
the fact that this is a running theory that I just came up with. So this is not coming from some, you know, research. This is the research of my brain. Yes. I think, I think that a lot of the stress of ministry is, has something in common with some of the stress that people feel in conversations. And I actually think that this, that conversation is becoming more and more of a stress after the pandemic. I think we're a little more introverted as a culture than we were yeah. before. And you know, people don't want to call on the phone. They want to text and it's understandable, but we have more anxiety around conversations. But I think the stress in common is maybe this idea that in this circumstance, I need to be in charge or in control in some way. And I know being in charge is different from being in control, but the stress of being in charge, turning into the idea that I need to be in control of this ministry, this parish, this ongoing conversation in the life of God with his people. As we're having this conversation right now, I'm just starting to think more and more that this is just a fundamental mistake because we've been talking about being prudently vulnerable. We've been talking about the art of being human. We've been talking about taking risks in in conversations and and how to listen and really be available to other people. I wonder if that sort of stress of being in charge or in control has ever haunted you in, in your vocation and ministry. And if, and if there's a time when you realize, ah, I'm not having as, as high quality conversations as I could be having, because there's something about control or being in charge that's sneaking in here and causing some anxiety. Hmm. Yes. Thanks for that question. I, the immediate place that I would go to in my mind is the the concern to try to accomplish too much uh, such that the vulnerability of the moment gets rushed past rather than making space for hearing how the people in the room are processing what we're grappling with and so learning to slow down learning sometimes that less is more learning that you know, you know, I'm, I'm in my 25th year of full-time university teaching and seminary teaching. And just to remember that, you know, when I was a seminary student, when I was an undergraduate student, I was on the early sides of learning a lot of things now that I take for granted. And so just giving people space and time to sometimes see things in ways that it's going to be more helpful to them if we'll slow down and let them draw some of their own conclusions. We set the, we set the table and then let them try to draw some of those conclusions for themselves and come to the insight a bit more slowly, but a bit more slowly in a way that will probably last longer and have a more profound impact in their lives. And so that's kind of one of the first places that 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 comes to mind is that uh, the sense of being overly controlling. It's just to slow down and trust the process of both relationship and the process of teaching and anticipate and, and trusting the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring about possibilities of learning and mutually informed insight in the body of Christ can, I think, help mitigate some of that anxiety that comes with that felt need to control. Where have you found, Lee, where taking that space for a conversation period or taking the time and space for a challenging conversation has opened up a new spiritual possibility? So there's a lot of stuff to get done, but then where have you seen a time where 
backing off from the task list for a moment and leaving space has actually opened up this a beautiful new possibility. Can you think of a, an instance that you would want to share? A simple one that just came to mind from last week was that I'm, I'm in a actually a season of my life where it's, it's kind of the, the, these six weeks I'm in are the most busy six weeks of my year. And I was had a class to teach on last Thursday afternoon and more deadlines than I could possibly get to that day. And I was sitting on my front porch enjoying the beautiful October autumn here in Nashville. And someone pulled into my driveway that I've known for years. But and I I really did not want to talk to them right then. But they didn't ask. They came to the front porch. They sat down on my front porch and started talking to me. <laughs> started talking to me. And I, I I was tempted to say, I'm sorry, I have this deadline and I've got a class at 120. Um, but I was able just to shut up and listen and converse for a while. And it just reminded me again that, you know, part of being human is the act of hospitality and that I was being invited into the space of the human, to use your phrase, the art of being human in extending hospitality. And so that, that was, that was a beautiful reminder of here I am getting the opportunity to be hospitable simply by listening and simply by waiting. And, you know, after half an hour, I did say, this has been nice. Um, I'm going to have to go because I've got this class here coming up. But it it allowed me to make space for appropriately honoring the person uh, in that moment. And I'm glad you mentioned that too, that you eventually had to say, I need to go because there's also an art and there's real prudence in finding wise and winsome ways to keep conversation short to avoid the resentment of getting trapped in conversations. Yes. yes. Especially when you are a conversation professional. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know. Yes. Knowing that you are a theologian, I'm going to ask you a very, a very simple question, Lee. <laughs> uh, it's actually, we could talk about this probably for a whole hour, but um, what kind of conversationalist is God? Mm. I think I would, what immediately comes to mind is, is the, I guess it's the Psalm, right? The day to day pours forth speech. Um, and, and pointing to the grandeur of God's communication to us through the creation, through scripture, through the body of Christ, through quiet, through the, the still small voice. So many ways scripture points to the ways in which God converses with us, communes with us. But, but I think it's also important to, to note that sometimes God is very, very quiet. And sometimes God does not converse, especially when I really wish God would converse. And I think that, you know, the kind of classic dark night of the soul or these moments that give rise to lament and the whole genre of lament in the Psalms or in the book of Lamentations or in the book of Jeremiah reminds us that God is, from our sense of our lived experience, often very, very quiet and very inactive, at least in ways that we can perceive. And this is part of the perennial human existential experience as we try to converse with God and encounter God, that often it's this overwhelming, over, over, overly abundant pouring out of God's speech being poured forth day to day. 
and then other times when which God is very, very quiet. And it's the reality of, of both of those and the continuum between them that is part of what it means to be pursuing life with Christ. And all of it has its own particular realities to navigate. I have had the joy to speak today with Dr. Lee C. Camp. Lee, thank you so much for joining us for this lovely conversation. I've enjoyed it, Amber. It's been very, very nice, and I appreciate the invitation to get to be with you. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church. Get ready in two weeks for a super juicy book conversation with Word on Fire author and J.R.R. Tolkien scholar, Dr. Holly Ordway on Lord of the Rings and the Middle-Earth Legendarium. I learned the word legendarium for this conversation and what they can teach us just in time for Advent. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been great to be with you. Peace.